Take your Bible, if you will, and you can turn to Acts chapter 1 and verse 1. Today we begin a new series. Our last series in the Gospel of Matthew took us about a year to work through, and this series will probably take a little longer than a year. And uh, today I just want to give you an introduction. In fact, it just might be that the introduction will last two weeks. Uh, there is so much to share with you about uh, this wonderful book that is an extension of the Gospels. And so if you look at verse 1, it says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. I don't know if that rings a bell for you, but that whole phrase, O Theophilus. There's another book in the Bible that actually has Theophilus in the introduction. It would be in Luke chapter 1, verse 3. Those of you who call yourself Bible students, you might want to write down Luke 1, 3. And let me read it for you. It says, It seemed good to me also, having followed all the things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. What we learn from this book of Acts and also from Luke is that Luke is the physician, the author, the historian who wrote both, both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And so what Luke recorded was a large portion of a continuous history found in the New Testament. His writings cover the birth and the life of Christ all the way to the birth and the life of the church. He was part of the team of apostles who actually God used to start the church. And yet these two very distinct works were very inspired by the Holy Spirit for different reasons. I want to try to help you understand how the book of Acts fits into the Bible, okay? Because if you read the book of Acts by itself, it will probably take you in directions that don't line up with Scripture. We need to put it in its proper place. What separates Luke's gospel from the book of Acts is the dramatic change that takes place in the lives of the disciples of Jesus Christ. Throughout the Gospels, Christ's followers are referred to as disciples. And yet when you come to the end of the book of, uh, of, of the Gospels, after the resurrection of Jesus, after Jesus shares the Great Commission, we now begin to see these same disciples being referred to as apostles. And when you come into the book of, of, uh, of Acts, initially he still refers to them as disciples, but then from that point forward, they are apostles. Every apostle, I mean, if I can, I'd like to give you the difference between a disciple and an apostle. This might be helpful. Have any of you ever wondered why? That, you know, the same guys who were disciples under Jesus are called apostles in the book of Acts. So let me give you the reason why. First of all, let me explain it this way. Every disciple or every apostle, every apostle was a disciple. Every apostle was a disciple. But not every disciple was an apostle. I just confused you, so let me go further into this uh, winding road. Every person who believes in Jesus is called his disciple. 
You, I, were disciples of Jesus Christ. In Matthew 28, where Jesus gave the Great Commission, verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The Greek word for disciple, if you want to write this down, it refers to the word learner. A disciple is a learner. A disciple is a student. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, please hear me. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, whether you're a teenager or whether you're in your 90s, you are called a disciple. You should still be learning. There never comes a point in the life of a believer that they stop learning. If you do, you're no longer a disciple. That's what the scripture teaches. So that means you're a learner. In the New Testament, when it references disciples, it's saying that they're learners. The Greek word for apostle means one who is sent. To be a disciple is to be a student, a learner. To be an apostle is to be one who is sent. And an apostle is given the authority of the one who sent them. In this case, Jesus Christ gave to his disciples this role of apostleship. He sent them to start the church. And so they have the authority of Jesus Christ. I want to say that clearly to you because I, I, I see today many times people who call themselves apostles. That title is used even today. They are not apostles in the order the Bible speaks of. You, you would have had to have been with Jesus, and you would have had to have been called by Jesus. The 12, not speaking of Judas, but Matthias, the 12 were apostles. You and I are not apostles. But we, those apostles were given authority through Christ to get the church started so that we disciples could learn and could grow. I hope that makes sense for you. I hope it maybe clarifies for you. Now, as I said earlier, there's a dramatic difference in the disciples from Luke's gospel to the book of Acts. The gospel of Luke concludes with a bunch of bewildered disciples. These guys were filled with fear. Most of them were in hiding and they were confused. They were reluctant to go forward without Jesus Christ standing beside them. You, you read that in the gospel. We read it in, the, in, in Matthew's gospel. It's just the way it is. Without Jesus walking beside, what do you mean you're going to leave? What's going to happen to us? We don't understand. And they were confused at the, at the crucifixion. They ran and hid at the crucifixion. These guys were not standing true and faithful. And yet you come into the book of Acts and all of a sudden somewhere they become energized. Then all of a sudden they are emboldened. And you say, what caused that? Well, first of all, the resurrection played a part in it. They were energized by the resurrection. I don't know, it kind of energized me too. If my Savior died on the cross, and I thought he was gone forever, and then three days later he appears to me, that would energize you, amen? Some of you act like you're sitting there like, oh yeah, yeah, well. If Jesus walked in this room right now, you'd be energized. That every hair on your back and on your head would stand up. Amen. Don't act so 
so uh, relaxed, like, ah, no big, yeah, no, this is just another sermon. No, it's not. This is the Holy Spirit speaking to you, not me. And he's trying to wake you up. The resurrection had an impact. Let me tell you what else had an impact on these men that gave them boldness. That would have been the work of the Holy Spirit that came on the day of Pentecost. All of a sudden, these men are filled with the Holy Spirit. And so, yes, they became bold. That, too, had an impact. The resurrection, the coming of the Holy Spirit. But there's something else that I think is lost and gets lost, and I never hear it spoken of. And I want to make sure that Vero Bible Fellowship understands from the Word of God what else happened to transform these, these fishermen who were weak, who were watery-eyed, who were running and hiding, and, and they were flustered, they were confused, they were reluctant. What turned them into these men who would actually stand on the streets of Jerusalem and openly proclaim Jesus Christ to the point that the Jewish leaders that put Jesus on the cross, they looked at them and indicted them for doing it. What in the world would have possibly done that? I'm going to tell you a third thing. Not just the resurrection, not just the Holy Spirit and his work in them, but suddenly these men have come into full understanding of the Old Testament. full understanding of the scripture they didn't have that before now they have it i want i want you to know that these men for the first time they see the big picture of god's plan of redemption that he set in motion all the way back at the beginning of the old testament after the fall of man this entire plan of redemption has been completely worked out through who Jesus Christ, the once-for-all sacrificial lamb. Yes, the resurrection played a role. Yes, and we're going to expound on the Holy Spirit as we study the book of Acts. That played a significant role. But it was also the full revelation of God's redemptive plan through Jesus Christ that played a huge role and made a difference in the lives of these men. Since the resurrection they now recognize Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. You see, throughout the Gospels, the disciples couldn't comprehend the fullness of the Old Testament. They just couldn't. They didn't understand fully the redemptive plan of God. They had grown up in a, Judaic, a, a, a Judaism and a system where you offered you know, ram and lamb and every other animal as a blood sacrifice for the covering of sin. That's the system they grew up in. That's the system they knew. Jesus spoke to them about the fact that he would die and he would, he would go to the cross, but they didn't understand. In fact, take your Bible. I want to show you because it, these are not my opinions. This is not what I think happened. This is the word of God. Luke chapter 9, look at verse 44. Luke chapter 9, verse 44. I'll give you just a second to get there. Luke the physician records, and all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, 
Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Now look at the next verse. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. You see, it wasn't until after the resurrection that Jesus finally opened the eyes of the disciples. He opened their minds to understand the mystery of the Old Testament, that he is, in fact, the Messiah and the complete fulfillment of the redemptive plan of God. Right after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to his disciples. In Luke chapter 24, I want to tell you this is a beach experience. They're on the beach. Jesus was a fisherman. And, and the disciples, many of them were, were fishermen. I love that because I like to fish and I like the beach. And here they are on the beach. And look at this. It says, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. They thought he was dead. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do, you, why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So even after the resurrection, don't get this idea that Jesus was just some kind of a force that kind of moved on the earth or some spirit that moved on the earth. I actually heard a preacher actually preach a sermon and he said this, it's not important that you believe that Jesus was raised bodily from the dead. Basically, he believed like some Star Wars theology. Jesus became a force. And as we go forward, the force is with you. It's not what the scripture says. Jesus even told his guys, look, I'm flesh and bone. After the resurrection... In a glorified body. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy, disbelieved for joy. I try to figure that out. Disbelieved for joy. And were marveling. He said to them, have you anything here to eat? If he's just a spirit, he shouldn't be eating food. I can tell you that. And they gave him a piece of, oh, I love this, broiled fish. <laughs> they had a fire going, man. And they stuck that fish on a stick, put that thing over the fire. Whoo! Some good eating. These boys know how to fish now. They know how to have a little beach party. And, they, and Jesus said, can I have a piece of that broiled fish? And he took it and ate it before them. And then he said to them, here it is. This is what we're getting to. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Look at the next verse, verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. For the first time after his resurrection, these disciples who had been raised in Judaism only had a portion of understanding of God's redemptive plan. And now their eyes are open. And for the first time, they see Jesus 
as the fulfillment of the Old Testament, of the prophets, and of the Psalms. He is the fulfillment. So before he revealed it to them, the disciples didn't understand the suffering and the death of the Messiah because they couldn't connect it to the Old Testament. They had this abbreviated view of the Old Testament that had been filtered by their form of traditional Judaism, which left out the most important elements of redemption. What is that? The suffering and atoning death of the Messiah and his subsequent resurrection. They couldn't grasp the Old Testament because it was still a mystery to them until he opened their minds to understand. Let me take you to one more example of this transforming that took place in the disciples. And they began to understand. It's found in Luke chapter 24. I do want you to go there. Please take the time to turn to Luke chapter 24. And we'll pick it up around verse 15. This is the story of the disciples who are actually on the road to Emmaus. This is after the crucifixion. They have left Jerusalem. They are saddened. They are disheartened. They are disillusioned. They don't believe they have a future. They don't have hope in anything because their Savior is now gone. It's on Sunday. It's the Lord's Day. That morning, the, the, some of the, the uh, women, followers of Christ, reported that his body was not in the tomb. Some of the disciples showed up and there was no body. And these particular disciples are now leaving the city and they are disheartened. He's gone. He's not even in the grave. Somebody came and took his body. And so it starts, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And Jesus, the one that it happened to, said, what things? <laughs> I love that. <laughs> what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, you can just see, concerning Jesus, read my lips. A man who was a prophet, mighty, look at that, look at what he said. This is a disciple of Jesus. He followed Jesus, he heard Jesus speak, look what he says. He's a prophet. A man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. So these guys are really let down at the death of Jesus. If they had full understanding of the Old Testament, then they would have known that his death was the fulfillment of the redemptive work of, of God for Israel. But the dots didn't connect for them until they met the risen Christ. Look at verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets in the Old Testament have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ, the Messiah, the Christos, the Anointed One, should suffer these things and enter into His glory? 
And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So it was on the road to Emmaus that Jesus first gave some of his disciples an understanding of the Old Testament that included his suffering, his death, his atonement, and his resurrection. By the way, just to finish out that story so we don't wonder how it ended, because they did come to realize it was Jesus. They ended up stopping along the way at some little, you know, hostel to have a a meal later in the evening, and they invited Jesus to, please stay with us. And he was like, I'm going to head on down. No, please, please stay. So he did. He went in, and he took He took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he distributed it. And all of a sudden, they recognized who it was. I love that. The Lord shows up in peculiar ways, doesn't he? But it was the suffering and death and atonement and the resurrection that these men didn't understand until Jesus revealed it to them after the resurrection. So what empowered these disciples? We're still on this point. The three things, write them down. The real reality of the resurrection, the coming of the Holy Spirit, and thirdly, the revelation that Jesus was indeed the fulfillment of the Old Testament. That God's redemptive plan was on schedule and being fulfilled through Jesus Messiah. So when you come to the book of Acts in your Bible, and go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 1, if you will, please. Follow along with me here. I want to hear the angel wings. Turn those pages. I know there's, today angel wings aren't as popular because you're using your, whoa, you're using your devices. And they don't have angel wings. Okay. And so, if you turn to Acts, you begin to notice right away, even in chapter 1, what do you see? If you look down, you see Old Testament quotes. Old Testament quotes. Chapter 1, there's an Old Testament quote. Twice in chapter 2, again in chapter 4, and so on. And what's important to note is that all of these Old Testament quotes are coming from the apostles. They've connected the dots. They get it. And now the message for the church and for the world is complete. The redemptive plan of God is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and they're able to use the Old Testament to proclaim Jesus as Lord. That's why he is Messiah, church. And so some of you look at the book of Acts and, and will say, well, it's the Acts of the Apostles. And I would agree with you, it is the Acts of the Apostles. Others would call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And I would agree with that. It is the Acts of the Holy Spirit. But the main character in the book of Acts is the same main character that was in the, in, in, in the, uh, in the Gospels, and it's the same main character that's throughout the entire Old Testament. The main character is God. It's the acts of God, and in particular, the acts of God regarding carrying out his redemptive plan through the church. We're going to learn in the book of Acts about church God's way. 
church God's way. The Old Testament is about God acting in blessing and judgment. The New Testament is about God bringing redemption through His Son. And the book of Acts is about God acting through the apostles and the church to preach the gospel and fulfill His plan to save sinners for, eternal, for His eternal glory. He accomplished everything He wanted to accomplish through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And now he's going to share that message through the apostles and from the apostles in the New Testament scripture to you and I so that we can fulfill and share that with the world. This is what Acts is all about. Now the real question is how does God plan on us doing that? Well, Jesus said in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That marked the launch, church, of the apostolic preaching of the gospel. And the preaching of the gospel established the church. And after the apostles died off, the church took the doctrines of, that, of the apostles that they left us in the New Testament, and they became the caretaker of gospel truth until Jesus returns. You and I are the caretakers of the gospel truth until Jesus returns. God is counting on us to share the gospel with the world. And it is the foolishness of the preaching of the gospel that saves people, I got to tell you. I don't know if you noticed last Sunday, but when I brought to you that message, I, there was nothing in that message. I, I didn't appeal to emotion. Just like I'm not trying to appeal to emotion today. I didn't tell some cute little story at the close that would move people's hearts to be saved. D.L. Moody was very good at that. He would, at the close of his preaching, he would tell the story of a father who had a dying child in his arms. And the little boy looks up to his father and he says, Daddy, will I see you in heaven? And then he would open the altars and people would flood down and get saved. I want to say to you today, and I, it, the, for only one point in terms of how to do this, the first point, you're going to see the gospel of Jesus Christ, the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ does not need our help. The gospel stands on its own. If we are faithful to proclaim the gospel, God will do the saving. God will grow his church. Last week, we, were, we shared the gospel through the message, and we closed the service. And Ron Carruthers came up to me a few minutes after the service had ended, several minutes after, and he had tears in his eyes, and he said, Pastor, two boys from Teen Challenge got saved today it's the lord in his work it's not the work of man i don't need to somehow try to and i could we can manipulate people to a response people do it all the time you're not going to find a whole lot of contextualization and manipulation here we don't have colored lights we don't have smoke at the back of the coming up on the on the on the platform we don't have all the the amenities, the accompaniments that a lot of churches have. What we do have, though, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if people 
have a heart to be saved, the Holy Spirit will open it and he will regenerate them on his own. He doesn't need Greg's help. I didn't get saved because of some cute little message that somebody preached and it warmly moved my heart and then I went and got saved. I got saved because I came into the understanding of the depths of my sin and where it put me in my relationship to God. And from understanding that and the wonderful love and grace of God to reach out to me, a lost sinner, and to save me, I became emotional in my response. But it wasn't because somebody was manipulating me I, I just think it's so important that we understand this. I want to close with these thoughts. By what means does our Lord empower his church to carry out this, this preaching of the gospel? And I'm going to tell you that the answer is pretty obvious in Scripture, although if you ask many pastors today, they will give you their formula for church growth. The church growth movement started back in the late 70s. There were a couple churches in particular. One was uh, Willow Creek, south of Chicago in Barrington, Illinois. Another was, Will was uh, Saddleback Church out in California, Rick Warren. Rick Warren started his church with this formula. I know this because I heard him say it, that he went through Saddleback Valley and he would knock on doors and he would ask if people were going to church. And those who were going to church, fine, great, wonderful but those who did not give a positive answer of going to church, he would say, what are the five things that, what are the things that bother you the most about church? Why aren't you going to church? And he recorded all these things and he wrote them down and he came up with a list of five things and he built his church on the idea, we won't do these five things. And people poured into that church. But I've got to be honest with you, church, that's not the formula that God uses to grow his church. I want to show you. It started out with 120 people on the day of Pentecost. And, and Peter gets up and preaches the gospel, including the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. He even calls out the Jews that are listening and says, you're the ones that put him on the cross. But God has come to save you from your sin. He didn't, he didn't water down the gospel. And on that day, that church went from 120 to 3,120 in one day. In one day. And then in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And day by day, verse 46, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And then persecution breaks out as Peter and John minister to a man at the temple gate beautiful and he receives healing because they said silver and gold have we not but what we have we'll give you in the name of Jesus Christ rise up and walk and the man got up and he was able to go this stirred up the Jerusalem council that put Jesus on the cross 
And, and, as, and it says in Acts chapter 4, verse 1, And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, and greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. So now you're at 3,000 people with 5,000 more men added. Oh, it's not that they didn't add uh, women and children. They did. They just didn't number them. So if you really want to know, now there are upwards of 20,000 people who now are following Jesus Christ. The church is exploding in growth. You go from 120 to 3,000 to 5,000 men probably 20,000 considering women and children, and this is the last time in the New Testament that it gives a specific number. Why? Because they couldn't keep up. They were adding people so fast. In Acts chapter 5, verse 14, and more than ever, and, and, and more than ever believers were added to the Lord. Now it just says multitudes of both men and women. When God, when we do church God's way, God gives the increase. I can't save anybody. I used to actually, at the close of a service, I would invite people to come forward and pray a prayer, a sinner's prayer, and I would have them repeat after me the sinner's prayer to be saved. I don't do that anymore. You know why? Because all over this city, I've got people who will walk up to me. It happened this week at a Sonny's restaurant, and a woman Stuck her head around the corner and said, I know I'm saved. Pastor Greg, I remember when you prayed, I prayed with you. I know I'm saved. I play no part in any person's salvation. That is a work, a regeneration work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of a person. You don't need a prayer. A prayer is a work. The Bible clearly tells us it's by grace through faith that you're saved. It's not by works. Because if it was, we'd boast in it. You can get saved today sitting right there where you are, hearing that Jesus Christ is the Lord, he is the Messiah, that he came to die on the cross for your sins, and God raising from the dead, showing sufficient evidence that Jesus' death could cover your sin debt before Almighty God. You can be saved by that right there, right now. And I have no part in it other than just telling you the gospel. And then the church continues to spread Chapter 6, verse 7, and the word of God continued to increase. I love that. And the word of God continued to increase. In other words, they continued to proclaim, open their mouths, and share the gospel. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Why would the priests become obedient to the faith? I'll tell you why. Because they were teaching them from the Old Testament that the priest thought he knew. And now he, did, he comes to realize, just like they, their eyes were opened by Jesus, now the Spirit opens the eyes of the priest to see Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And then the Lord spreads beyond Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. In Acts chapter 9, verse 31, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. And then in Acts chapter 12, 24, it says, but the word of God increased and multiplied. There again, the word of God increased. 
And in Acts 16.5, now you're in the totally pagan world. This is a missionary journey. And it says, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. Acts 19.20, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Wouldn't you love to know the number by this time in Acts chapter, 20, in Acts chapter 19? The church has just exploded exponentially. What was the secret? Did you notice that it continually referred to the faith and the word of God? As the word of God increased, the numbers increased. What's the secret to a growing church? Be faithful to the word of God. You don't need all the marketing skills. Honestly, we're meeting in a cafeteria. We've got fluorescent lights. We've got all these school banners, and we've got tables and... I mean, what is spiritual about this? But when the Holy Spirit shows up in the hearts of believers that gather on Sunday, this goes from a cafeteria to a chapelteria. And God does a work. It's never been about, God's work, God's church has never been about contextualization. So the book of Acts ends with this statement. I mean, all the way to the very end. The last words in the book of Acts... It says, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And by the way, we're, to, we're the carryover of the book of Acts. This is what we ought to be about. It was the apostolic preaching of the cross that caused the church to explode. And it exploded and it exploded and it exploded and it exploded and it's still exploding. As Tom Doyle, our missionary in the Middle East said, one of the fastest growing churches in the world today is in Afghanistan. Where the greatest persecution, well not the greatest, North Korea holds number one position in that. But they are being persecuted. Christians are being persecuted. And yet the church is growing. Why? Because the Christians in Afghanistan won't shut up about the preaching of the gospel. It thrills my heart when those of you here take a stand in our community for Christ. You don't get belligerent and obnoxious about it. You, you just lovingly, firmly stand. It thrills my heart as a shepherd to see members of this flock who share the gospel with lost people. That's what the early church is all about. So what was the first means that God used to grow his church? Um, it's the life-giving message. That's the purpose behind growing the church. It's a life-giving message. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. That's how we grow and that's how we go. We go in the world with the word of God. In John 6, Jesus himself said, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. See, that's the message of the church. Christ and him crucified, risen, ascended, and coming again. That ought to be flowing off of your lips all week long. This was the message regardless of the period in history 
or regardless of the cultural differences. That's because the gospel transcends all languages, all nations, all cultures, all societal norms, all contexts, all socioeconomic and, and educational positions. Back then, they didn't have a mass media attempting to create a one global culture. They were very deeply culturally divided back in those days. Every village had them. Every region had its own. Every nation had its own. But with all that being said, those distinct cultures had absolutely zero effect on the gospel of Jesus Christ. The apostles did not change the message to fit the culture. They stayed faithful with the message in spite of the culture. Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Be witnesses of me, period. That was the command from the very beginning, and the message never changed. It couldn't change. Even on the day of Pentecost, get this, in the city of Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, there were Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the districts of Libya and around Cyrene, people from Rome, Jews, proselytes, Cretans, Arabs, they were all in Jerusalem at the same time. And there was only one message that they heard that day. And they didn't hear that message that Peter preached in their own language. They heard one message in one language, and 3,000 got saved. And it didn't just work in Jerusalem. The apostles go out of Jerusalem and they proclaim this life-giving message all the way to Rome, from biblically literate Jews to biblically illiterate Gentiles. They took this message from slaves to slave owners, from Jews to Greeks, from men to women. They crossed every national, every social, every cultural barrier, and not once did they adjust the message. It never changed. Why? Because this is the message that God has sent. It is the life-giving word of the Lord. I don't know if you have ever considered this, but Paul, in his letters, he never, make, he never wrote differently to the Gentile churches. He said the same thing to everybody. Why? These, listen, remember, the people that he wrote in the Gentile world had no background in Judaism. They didn't know anything about the Old Testament. And Paul didn't change his message. He just preached Jesus Christ crucified, risen again, coming again. Hallelujah. It's simple, folks. Doing church God's way is just every person here this morning who knows Jesus personally asking the Holy Spirit for boldness to go out and proclaim the gospel this week. That's what it means to be a disciple. You're a learner, and then you go and practice what you learn. And you raise up other learners. I, I just, I love the book of Acts. It's going to be a great study. I gave you just one of the things that we are to do as God's church, and that is to share the life-giving message. I want to give you several more next week. So we'll stay in our introduction next week, and then we'll finally get to the book of Acts in two weeks, okay? <laughs> I want to close our time in prayer, and I want to thank you for being here, and I want to thank you for opening your heart to the work of the Holy Spirit. We do have elders, and we have prayer partners who will come and they'll stand across the front on both sides. If you have a need in your life, you would like to be prayed with, 
uh, you, there's something about agreeing in prayer. Just to have someone to agree with you in prayer. If you would please come forward, our, our team will be glad to hear your heart and pray with you, agree with you. And uh, if, if, you're, if you don't know the Lord and today you have opened your heart to Jesus, I want to say this to you, you're saved. If you've repented of sins and you've believed that Jesus is the Son of God and He forgives sins, you're saved. It's okay to tell somebody about it today. That's an awesome thing. Look, look hey, being a Christian is not a solo sport. God doesn't save you and put you on an island. He puts you in a family. This is your family. Tell people about it. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this morning we do just thank you for your word and we thank you for your faithfulness to take your word and save souls all over this globe. May we, the church, be part of that wonderful plan of redemption. And may we share the gospel of Jesus, proclaiming it to people everywhere. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, church.